Welcome to the Campus Exchange, an AEI for Students podcast. I'm Alex Simchak, a senior at the College of William & Mary and a member of the AEI Executive Council Program. Today, I'm very excited to share a conversation I moderated with AEI's Adam White in the aftermath of Justice Ginsburg's passing and then Judge Amy Coney Barrett's nomination to the Supreme Court. Before getting started, I just wanna let you know that the AEI Executive Council Program gives current undergraduates the opportunity to engage with AEI scholars through conversations like these and to improve the quality and diversity of public policy dialogue on their campuses. If you wanna get involved or learn more about AEI's work on college campuses across the country, just check out the link in the show notes and make sure to follow us at AEI for students on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook. With that, here's Adam White. Hello, thank you all for attending Justice for All, the future of the embattled Supreme Court, a conversation hosted by the AEI Executive Council at William Mary with featured speaker, Mr. Adam J. White. My name is Alex Simshak, a student here at the college and a member of the Executive Council. Our format this evening is pretty simple. Mr. White and I will have a conversation around 30 minutes, and then I'll be turning to your questions. So if you have questions for Mr. White throughout this event, please type them in the Q&A feature at the bottom of your screen. And our guest tonight, Adam White, is a resident scholar at the American Enterprise Institute, where he focuses on U.S. constitutionalism, the Supreme Court, and the administrative state. He's also currently an assistant professor at the Antonin Scalia Law School at George Mason University. Mr. White has also appeared in numerous publications, including the Wall Street Journal, Harvard Law, Journal of Law and Public Policy, and the Notre Dame Law Review. He's testified before many United States House and Senate committees, and in 2017 was appointed to serve on the Administrative Conference of the United States. So on the behalf of the AEI Executive Council at the College of William Mary, it's my great honor and pleasure to introduce Mr. Adam J. White. Adam, thank you so much for being here with us tonight. It's my pleasure to do this. Obviously, it's an interesting time to be talking about the court. I can't, it's quite possible we set this up even before the vacancy. I don't know, it's, it all happened so quickly. It's been interesting to watch the hearings, and I'm glad to chat about whatever you all would like to chat about. I pointed out right beforehand, I pointed out to Alex that I'm bringing my official William & Mary Big as a House coffee mug, which I was given last year when I came to talk at the law school, which was a nice chance to visit your beautiful campus. So fire away. To start off, I'd like to invite you to discuss an article you wrote titled Save the Vote, Save the Court, which came out right before Judge Amy Coney Barrett was nominated. So would you mind explaining the argument you made in that piece? Yeah, it's an argument that nobody listened to, but I'm glad to chat about it. Just by way of background, let me get my cards on the table. I'm a huge, huge fan of Amy Coney Barrett. I've been following her work for a long time, and we'll, maybe we'll talk about that later. So I'm a, even before she was nominated, I was hoping that she'd be nominated, and we'd be very, very happy if she's confirmed. I'm also profoundly worried about the debate surrounding the court, the politics surrounding the court, and the possibility of court packing. The last 40 years have been a constant sort of escalation, a series of escalations in the war about judicial nominees. Really, I think it's fair to, to mark the, the story as beginning really with Senator Ted Kennedy's blindside attack on Robert Bork, you know, just a year after Scalia was confirmed 98 to nothing, Kennedy succeeded in blocking the appointment of a judge who was in almost every respect identical intellectually to to Scalia. And it really opened up a new era of, of escalations. My own view of this, also putting my cards on the table, is that for the most part, Democrats were brought about the escalations beginning with Bork. Even after Bork and Thomas, Republicans were very easy on Breyer and Ginsburg. They were both confirmed overwhelmingly. Democrats tried to filibuster Alito a few years later. Republicans really escalated in turn two, four years ago when they spent a year blocking 
movement on the Merrick Garland nomination. And so Democrats have always felt that the Gorsuch seat was, was filled illegitimately by Gorsuch. Obviously, they had accusations against Brett Kavanaugh, and now there's the Amy Coney Barrett appointment to, to replace Ruth Bader Ginsburg on the eve of the election. I've been very, very worried about the court backing plans ever since they've been sort of raised by a, a few Democratic presidential candidates two years ago. I think Pete Buttigieg might have been the first one to, to raise the issue. I can't remember. I wasn't worried about the threats. Court packing has been anathema ever since Franklin Roosevelt tried it in 1937 and failed. But the idea of adding new seats, which I think in turn would, would, would inspire Republicans adding more seats in turn until you have a Supreme Court that's 17, 19 members and starts to act less like a real court and more like a miniature legislature. I worry that the politics from the Garland nomination forward have probably spun up a lot of Democratic office holders, including ones that might have been skeptical of court packing, into favoring court packing if they are able to win the presidency and the Senate. And so that is a long way of getting to the article I wrote when Ruth Bader Ginsburg died. The article was called Save the Vote, Save the Court. And what I proposed was that President Trump nominates somebody immediately and the Senate Judiciary Committee begin the process immediately, but to hold off on a vote, basically so that it wasn't rushed. I'm worried that rushing to a confirmation vote before the election, which is a really astonishingly fast confirmation process, that that will further inflame Democrats, including any centrist Democrats that have been thinking about this, and inspire them to pack the court. And so I said, wait until after the election, at that point, see what happens in the election. And if President Trump is reelected or if Republicans keep the Senate, then it's the, the whole court packing thing is a moot point because Democrats won't be able to pack the court and they can go ahead and confirm Judge Barrett. If they should happen to lose both the House and the Senate, then in the lame duck, they'd have a real choice to make. Do you move forward with the confirmation or not? And what I said in the article was that would be a good moment for Republicans to at least hold out an olive branch to Democrats and see if a deal could be made to prevent court packing for at least six years or so. I really think that if we can get past six years, the temperature will have calmed down enough to sort of move past court packing again and dodge that bullet. And if Democrats aren't interested in a deal, then go ahead and confirm. I guess where I'll leave off of this is, I think the greatest constitutional crisis we face as a country today is the crisis of self-restraint. Those of you who study political science know that we have a system that counts on ambition, counteracting ambition, and the different branches checking and balancing one another. And that's true, but it's only half the truth. The other half of the truth is Madison and others wrote, and I wrote, I guess, this year in an article for the Atlantic Monthly. There's also, our system presumes certain kinds of self-restraint, the branches constraining themselves through what we call Republican virtue. And I think that if Republicans could restrain themselves, even temporarily, and just see if there is a place to, I mean, if they're not in a position to confirm or to at least see about a deal, that's the kind of gesture which it might be futile, but it might not. And at the very least, we'll never know how to restore self-restraint to our constitutional system if a party in power doesn't restrain itself. That's a very long-winded gist of the article. Precisely zero people listened to it, not even my mother. She thought it was harebrained. She says, this is very simple. Just confirm Amy Coney Barrett. She's a great judge. And she is a great judge, and I hope she's confirmed. But sometimes the way you go about doing things matters almost as much as what you do. And I, this feels like one of those moments. Well, that's an incredibly interesting argument. I've actually never heard that. So thank you for sharing that. And actually, towards later, later questions, I did want to maybe get to that Atlantic piece that you wrote. 
Moving on to the next question. So is there any precedent for the idea that a president should not nominate a Supreme Court justice during election year? And what about the reverse? Are there arguments for it? Just want to maybe get your thoughts on the history behind that idea. No. So with Supreme Court confirmations, right, it takes two to tango. The president nominates, the Senate either confirms or it doesn't. And there really isn't a precedent saying that the president needs to stay his own hand. The closest thing we ever got to this probably was, in addition to the much more famous and recent Obama nomination of Merrick Garland, was in, in 1968, President Johnson, who did not seek re-election, he had an opportunity to fill a vacancy by Chief Justice Earl Warren. Warren wanted to retire in time to get his successor appointed by Johnson. And Johnson went ahead and nominated Abe Fortas, a sitting Supreme Court justice, to be confirmed as chief justice. There was a sufficient minority in the Senate to, to threaten to filibuster, much the same way Republicans said in 2016, we're not going to move forward on this. We're not going to let the Senate move forward on this until after the election. And so there's nothing stopping a president from nominating. In fact, it's be sort of shocking not to nominate somebody and at least try to get them confirmed. The question then, as we saw in 68 and 2016, and now is, what does the Senate do with that nomination? And that's so much of it depends on who the senators are at a given moment in time. Okay, thank you. I did not, definitely did not know that fact. Can I add one more thing about this? So when I was a law student, barely older than any of you are, I had to write a third year paper before graduating. This was in the early 2000s. Democrats were filibustering President George W. Bush's lower court nominees. And so I wrote a paper. I said, I'm going to write a paper supporting President Bush's argument at the time that the Senate was obligated by the Constitution to at least give the nominee an up or down vote. I started to write that paper and very quickly changed my mind. I looked back at the founding debates. I looked at the colonial era Massachusetts practices that our own constitutional process was modeled on. And I ended up writing a paper saying, you know, the Senate actually doesn't have an obligation to do anything on judicial nominations. They get to pick. The president is coming upon the president to convince the Senate to move. The framers in their debate in Philadelphia actually considered a proposal where the president would nominate. And if the Senate didn't affirmatively veto the nominee within a certain window of days, the appoint the nominee would go into effect. They didn't pick that. They picked what we have, which says unless the president can get the Senate to confirm the nominee, nothing happens. And so I ended up writing that article at a time when Again, Democrats were blocking Republican nominees, really good nominees, actually, including Kavanaugh, who wound up getting, obviously, in the Supreme Court. But again, student, it was a student note, and so precisely zero people, not even my mother, cared about it for about 10 years until Justice Scalia died in the middle of an election year. And I came back to work on a Monday morning and found my voicemail. It's like full of messages from Capitol Hill wanting to talk about this decade-old article. I said to them at the time, they said, so you're saying we don't have to vote? We don't have to vote on the Garland nomination? I said, no, you don't have to do anything. You're the Senate. You'd go do what you're going to do. And they said, can you come up with an argument why we can't vote? And I said, no, you're on your own with that one. You have to justify what you're doing. You're not locked in. That's the whole point of this. So they spent 2016 mostly saying, we don't want to vote because it's an election year and the people deserve to have their voices heard. Now they, they go back and say, we were really talking about when you have divided government, what a pa- Senate of one party, a president of the other. I'll be honest. They said that from time to time, but the real thrust of the argument throughout the year was in an election year, the Senate should not vote. They should leave it to the people to have a say on. I thought that was a stretch at the time. I thought it was an overreach. And obviously, it's now come back to bite Republicans a little bit because they're seen as hypocritical. They've come up with a justification for going different this time, namely, this time the president and the Senate are in the same party. But 
I don't know. It really kind of smacks of hypocrisy. And I do worry that it's going to inflame, again, and further inflame Democrats to do something really reckless impacting the court. All right, I'll stop filibustering now. Totally fine. The next question I wanted to go into was, so what have you thought about the first days of the confirmation hearings for Judge Amy Coney Barrett? Have there been any moments that have surprised you thus far? You know, the funny thing about the, the Barrett thing is, if you had sort of woke up from sleeping for eight years and you just were told this was a, confirma- a Supreme Court confirmation hearing, you would look at it and you'd say, oh, it looks like basically every other confirmation hearing. They ask, the senators ask questions about the usual cases. You know, the Democratic senators are asking a Republican nominee about like Roe v. Wade. If this were a Republican Senate and a Democratic nominee, they'd be asking about Heller and the Second Amendment. It's all totally normal. Barrett, I think, has been a, a really terrific nominee. It doesn't surprise me at all. Except every once in a while, you get these where the, the person who, who, if they'd been asleep for eight years, and they suddenly hear the question about, you know, nominee, can you just tell us that you believe in the peaceful transfer of power after an election? Or what do you think about self-pardons? And if you've been sleeping for eight years, you'd say, well, wait a second, what the heck is going on here? The only extraordinary thing about this nomination is, you know, the extraordinary politics surrounding Washington in general. That's been, it's been interesting to see that kind of invade the hearings from time to time. And Barrett does what I think is the right thing. I mean, she's not just a nominee, she's a sitting judge. She can't prejudge issues, especially a sitting judge can't prejudge issues. And so she's been right to sort of say, I'm not getting into any of these things. So I guess my bottom line is it has been a totally conventional confirmation process, except for those weird moments where the reality of our totally abnormal politics just suddenly invades for a moment and then recedes and we go back to talking about Roe v. Wade. So following off of that, obviously, yeah, confirmation hearings have become heavily politicized in, in some ways. So do you see any change to this in the future? Do you think this kind of politicization will continue at least for you know, the next five years? The best thing that's ever been written on this was a dissenting opinion by Justice Scalia in one of the big abortion cases. It was from 1992. It was called Planned Parenthood versus Casey. This was happening, you know, five years after the Bork nomination, a year or two after the Thomas nomination. They had just endured, the court had just endured like a year of protests outside of the court. I mean, not every day, but when the abortion case got on the docket, there were just protests and protests. And Scalia says in this dissenting opinion, after the court had reaffirmed the basic core of Roe v. Wade. Scalia, you know, he criticizes the opinion on its merits. But then he says at the very end, my colleagues worry about all the political pressure on the court, the protests, the confirmation process. It's the court's own fault. Because the more that the Supreme Court takes policy issues and turns them into constitutional issues, the more the court makes its decisions not on the basis of clear constitutional text, but on the basis of value judgments, the more that the people will protest both outside of the court and in the confirmation process. He said, the court needs to be mindful of two facts. The American people love democracy and the American people aren't fools. Those are his lines. And to the extent that they see Supreme Court litigation as just legalized, the, the sort of the judicialization of value judgments, well, they're going to make their value judgments heard outside the court and also in the confirmation process. And Scalia says something like, the process then should devolve into just senators asking judges about their policy positions. Because if that's what the court does, this is the time for the people to ask about it. Now, the court shouldn't do that, right? I'm a textualist. I'm an originalist. I believe that the right way to, for the court to interpret the laws is according to the original meaning with minimal policy discretion in the hands of judges. And so until the court returns to that, confirmation processes are always going to be 
a big political fight. Thing is, to get from here to there is going to require huge political fights of his own. I think it's impossible. It's always going to be like this until someday, long in the future, some glorious, beautiful future where the Supreme Court is all, is all textualists and everybody in the country is a textualist. It's not happening anytime soon. And so it's going to be like this for a long time. Moving into the next question, I wanted to get your insights about how you think if, if Judge Barrett is confirmed, becomes Justice Barrett. I was wondering how you thought that think that would change American just jurisprudence. Any areas where you think these differences would be significant? And are there others where you think they might actually be consistent? Yeah. So let's start with the obvious one, right? Like everybody's talking about Roe v. Wade and, and some other precedents like that from the last 50 years. The usual cases that conservatives like me criticize as being judicial policymaking not rooted in constitutional text. That's what people will focus on first. And it's, of course, replacing Judge Ruth Bader Ginsburg, who was appointed by Bill Clinton and who was a staunch advocate for the reaffirmation of Roe. Replacing her with a judge from the mold of Justice Scalia, appointed by a Republican, is going to reinvigorate and complicate those debates. As I think Barrett has signaled pretty loudly, the courts can't begin to roll back these rights until, first of all, there are laws passed that give rise to litigation that makes its way through the lower courts and then gets to the Supreme Court. And then when the Supreme Court's even hearing the case, it has to think not just about the legal interpretation, it has to think about how much weight to give precedent like Roe. And maybe we'll circle back to that in a minute because Barrett has been, she's dedicated her whole career to thinking about what it means to have precedent in a, in a constitutional system. So that's you know, where she's most obviously relevant. But where I think it's going to be actually the most interesting is how she slots into this new six justice conservative coalition. I've spent a a little over a decade, I guess, writing about these things, writing about the different kinds of constitutional conservatism, the way that justices, you know, conservative justices sometimes disagree amongst themselves in interesting ways. Interesting to see where Barrett slots into that. She identifies most closely with Scalia. She said that herself. Scalia gave a lot more weight to precedent than, say, Justice Thomas does. Scalia spoke a lot more in terms of judicial restraint. Thomas and Gorsuch really focus, I think, put more emphasis on, on notions of liberty. All of them talk about all of these things, judicial restraint, liberty, judicial duty. But Scalia always, until almost the end, referred to himself as a faint-hearted originalist. Justice Thomas is not faint-hearted. And I think you can kind of look across the spectrum of conservatives on the court now. You have Thomas and Gorsuch probably the most interested in talking about individual liberty and the least patient with precedent. At the other end of the spectrum is Roberts and Kavanaugh and Alito, who are a little bit more restrained in varying different ways. I mean, they're all conservative or libertarian. They're all sort of in the same category, but there are some interesting disagreements, and we'll see where Barrett slots into that. The other most interesting justice right now, though, is Kagan. She's the first liberal justice in modern times who speaks originalism and textualism as a first language. And so the court isn't just, the court is no longer, you know, a debate between the conservative originalists and the living constitution liberals. You have Kagan really making arguments, for example, in the, the Civil Rights Act case this year involving discrimination on the basis of sex and how that applies to sexual orientation and, and gender identity. Kagan was able to formulate arguments for protection against discrimination on these bases in textualist terms. And I think she sort of attracted and inspired legal briefs that made those arguments in those terms. And so because of her presence on the court, it actually 
magnifies subtle disagreements among the other conservatives, right? Because when Kagan is now speaking in textualist terms, the conservatives on the court have to think a little bit more precisely about where does my textualism take me? What about these textualist arguments that Kagan is raising? And I think that was, you know, most evident in the in this Bostock case about the Civil Rights Act. And I think that's the new normal. You're going to have Kagan and these six justices in very interesting conversations about textualism in ways that we just haven't seen before. I did not know that about Justice Kagan. That is very interesting to hear that. Yeah, um, she said in a, in a speech when Scalia died, her famous line was, we're all originalists now. I got to be honest, conservatives like me sort of looked at that and chuckled. I don't think of her as, she calls herself an originalist, a textualist. I don't agree with her on the way she does it. But I agree that she's thinking in those terms. She's arguing in those terms. It's a real challenge for conservatives like me. I want to talk about now Justice Ruth Bader Ginsburg undoubtedly had a consequential legal career. But what do you see as her most significant contribution to American law, both as a lawyer and as a justice? Well, as a lawyer, it speaks for itself. She was a trailblazer, both in her own career, coming out of Harvard and Columbia without obvious legal career prospects, just like Sandra Day O'Connor. She became a world-changing lawyer in terms of discrimination on the basis of sex, equal protection for women under the law. Related to that, in a way that I don't think has been appreciated enough, is that by modeling her approach to litigation, public interest litigation, on the civil rights era 20 years earlier, she helped really cement that approach to modern constitutional litigation, right? The NAACP pioneered that for decades. There's a wonderful book by a law professor, old professor of mine named Kenneth Mack, called Representing the Race, where he details the NAACP's approach to litigation. I'd say that the success of groups in then litigating in similar ways on sexual discrimination for abortion and, and privacy as well, birth control, really made that the new model that even conservative groups, libertarian groups now imitate when they file their lawsuits. And so I think as a lawyer, even before she was on the court, she really helped cement the Supreme Court's place in American politics. I'm not a fan of that. I think that, that it really has drawn the court into too many political disputes, but it was a generational, maybe not world historical, but definitely American historical event that she deserves a lot of credit for. As a justice, Quite frankly, it's funny to think back just five or 10 years. She wasn't really a vocal member of the court. Her most famous opinion was, it was called VMI. It was the Virginia Military Institute where the court declared that it was unconstitutional for VMI to be a a men-only institution. One of her greatest opinions and also one of Justice Scalia's greatest dissents. So she gets a lot of credit for that opinion. It wasn't until the last few years that she really became sort of a standout figure on the court, let alone a pop culture celebrity. There's this sort of tradition of a sort where the senior most liberal member of the court really does take on an outsized vocal role. Justice Harry Blackman, a Ford appointee, did that as a liberal. Justice Stevens, or actually Blackman was a a Nixon appointee. Stevens was a Ford appointee, but became a liberal justice. He became sort of a, a very vocal member of the court in his last years. And Ginsburg did as well, basically from about 2007, 2008 onward and really shattered any kind of limits on the chief justice as a pop culture figure. And so for my podcast today, EI taped an episode that we're going to release in about a month or so. 
about celebrity culture and Supreme Court justices. And she didn't like create it all herself, but she surely didn't shrug it off either. I mean, just like Scalia didn't shrug it off either. And so she and Scalia really did create this sort of celebrity culture. They were the ones who, around whom the celebrity culture of the Supreme Court was created. I would definitely love to look at that podcast when you guys put that up. Yeah, um, it'll be a, it's a fun one. Cool. Thank so you. for the last question, before we move into the q and I wanted to talk about your Atlantic piece. So you wrote this piece earlier this year on the importance of civic virtue. So I wanted to know maybe if you want to just recap your argument again for that article. Yeah. And then how could the idea of civic virtue help us during polarized times like these confirmation hearings? So again, people who study political science, they learn of constitutionalism as checks and balances. And that's extremely important. In fact, I'd say the greatest success of the last 40 years of conservative constitutionalism has been the reinvigoration of public respect for and understanding of the need for structure in our constitution, checks and balances, federalism, all of that, ambition, counteracting ambition. I'm very proud to say that's a a discussion that really did, it's no exaggeration to say it really started at AEI and the people around AEI in the early 1970s, who in the run-up to the bicentennial in 1976, really started talking about the founders in a way that hadn't been discussed. And then the conservative legal movement, the, the Federal Society, my friends there, I'm a member of the Federal Society myself, you know, spent a couple of decades really restoring public respect for separation of powers and, and federalism. So it's all true. And, the, and we need these things because, as James Madison said, we need government that's fit for men who aren't angels, right? If, we, if, if men were angels, no government would be necessary. But I, I've come to worry that we've overlearned that lesson right? It's true we have a government fit for men who aren't angels, but it doesn't mean that all of us can be devilish all the time, right? And, and Madison himself said this in Federalist 55 and elsewhere, that Republican government really presumes it requires certain virtues, qualities of character among the people and among office holders. Not all office holders at all times. Again, we, we assume that there won't always be enlightened statesmen at the helm of the ship of state, but we need enough of this virtue. And sometimes, you know, virtue is lacking in the, among the government, but it's there in the people. And sometimes it's a little lacking in the people, and we need the government. Just as, you know, again, to keep going back to the Federalist, Madison writes that we need the government to control the passions of the people, but we need the reason of the people to govern the government. And so you have this sort of push and pull about the people and the government. At the core of it is, is virtue, not like I mean, I'm Catholic, so I have certain ideas about virtue. I'm just talking about what the framers understood as Republican virtue, which is a belief that there is like a public interest greater than our own interest, and that we're not always in the best position to recognize that because of our own interests. But we have a system that's supposed to filter our individual interests and achieve this sort of public interest. A belief in persuasion, not just power, and the willingness to try to persuade and the willingness to be persuaded a willingness to restrain ourselves when we're on the losing side, a willingness to restrain ourselves when we're on the winning side. And this is manifest in all of our federal government. I mean, the Congress was such a threat to liberty that they had to divide it into two, right, with internal checks and balances. But you think about the presidency. The president swears an oath to faithfully execute the laws. That's laws that he didn't enact himself, right? Laws that he might disagree with, but he pledges an oath I think faithful is an interesting word there, to faithfully execute the laws, or he swears an oath to faithfully execute his office. But the Constitution elsewhere says, you know, he has the duty to faithfully execute the laws. 
And also in the judiciary, it's not there in the text of the Constitution, but you look back to Hamilton's writings about the judiciary and other people's writings about the judiciary, and they understood that the office required men who now and women, thankfully, who will bind themselves down by laws and by precedents. And so my article in The Atlantic was just pointing back to that. This was back in January, February, pointing back to the fact that checks and balances are important, but they're not the only thing. The metaphor I like to use sometimes is if our constitutional system is a machine, you know, machines don't maintain themselves. They don't lubricate themselves. And, you know, if I'm going to mow the lawn, I need a lawnmower, right? I can't just mow the lawn with a bucket of oil, but I need that can of oil to keep the machine functioning. The blades won't sharpen themselves. I need to take care of those things. And I think that we need to understand better how the different parts of government rely on those virtues. Now, they don't sustain themselves. That's one of those amazing things, right? That the government, our system demands these virtues, but it doesn't produce them. And if anything, our system sort of spends down those virtues. So where does it come from? It comes from a few places. I'm religious, and so I believe religion has a part to play in that, but it's not the only thing. It requires statesmanship. It requires civic-minded education. It requires participation in government and organizations at a small level, local government, school boards, things like that, unions, if you're a member of a union. Someday, if you guys don't already you know, own your own homes, someday you will, and you'll have a homeowners association, and you'll immediately lose faith in democracy. But it's one of these things where it's participation, as Tocqueville wrote, the act of participating in government at a small level, or even just in community in a small way, instills the patience and the qualities of character that prepare us for governance statewide or even nationwide. And I think it's not a coincidence that Republican virtue has really faded away over a half century when participation in those organizations has faded away. Politics becomes something you know, we're not really involved in so much as we observe. You know, today, we observe it through Twitter. God help us all. But you know, long before that, it was we're observing national politics through TV instead of engaging in politics. And so I think all those, th- and, and also, again, the breakdown in education and, and having it much less civic-minded than it used to be. I think all these things are in play, but the question then is, well, how do you restore those? I don't know yet. There probably isn't a good answer. I hope there is, because I plan to write a book about it, but I'm probably not going to figure it out for myself until I, time I finish writing the book. This is very interesting you brought up Tocqueville there. That's what a lot of your argument reminded me of. So I wanted to move into the Q&A portion. So our first question, what are the implications of term limits in the Supreme Court? I'm glad you asked. This is something I've been thinking about a lot. So thank you, anonymous attendee. I was always skeptical of term limits. I've now come around to thinking that they're not perfect. They have problems, but they're better than what we have now. With only nine seats on the Supreme Court, which I think is a good thing. I mean, it could be seven, it could be 11. Nine isn't a perfect number, but it's worked very well for 150 years. With only nine seats and people living longer and longer, it means that anytime a seat opens up because of retirement or death, we suddenly have this explosion of political pressure. And again, it's because the court has taken so many issues out of politics. It means that all the pressure that used to be you know, applied to those issues in the political realm all now get compressed into the court and they all get compressed into a confirmation hearing. It's not sustainable. It's, not, it's no way to run a country. And so term limits, everybody who writes about this says, let's do 18 years. So you have a justice with nine justices, you have a justice retiring every two years. It means every president's going to get at least two appointments. 
And if somebody dies while they're in office, that, that appointee, you know, serves out the remainder of the term. So it could be, you know, 17 years, but more likely we're talking two, three, four years. It will just ratchet down the pressure. Ironically, we'll have more confirmation hearings, but with less sort of angst surrounding all of them. I think that's all a good thing. And I think it's worth doing. When the Constitution was framed up originally and judges were given the equivalent of life tenure, they weren't living to be like 95 years old. It's just fundamentally different. And judges would retire. You know, John Jay, our first chief justice, retired, I think, to run for governor of New York. And then later, when he was invited to come back for a second term, he said, you know, thanks, but no thanks. Hard pass. I I want to do something different now. Nobody expected this stuff was going to be life tenure. Here's the downside about term limits, though. And I don't think anybody's talking about this. And so I will. It'll be weird to have justices thinking about their next job. And not like in a craven way, like justices sitting back and like twisting their mustache and thinking, how can they rule in favor of a party in a way that'll win them a great job? The fact is that if you have justices retiring, even if they're retiring at age 75 or something, they're going to get very lucrative job offers afterwards. Actually, one thing they might get is, you know, there are companies out there that specialize in arbitration, kind of like a private sector judicial judiciary, where if you don't want to have to wait to have your cases, you know, litigation resolved in like a slow courtroom process, parties will oftentimes go to these alternative dispute resolution firms to decide the cases. Oftentimes, a lot of retired judges. If justices start getting term limited, there's going to be a company out there. There's going to be multiple companies that try to recruit justices to be part of their like ADR firms. They'll be throwing around million dollar offers like baseball players, you know, five, $10 million a year for Supreme Court justices to decide disputes between big corporations. And as soon as you create that market for retired justices, it's going to create incentives for justices who are already term limited to retire early, right? To go make a lot of money. I don't think anybody's thought enough about this. I haven't seen anything written about it. It's just going to get really weird to have it like a National Basketball Association quality market for retired justices to resolve private sector disputes outside of litigation. And so I think we should think about that before we really go along with this. We probably should still go along with this. And maybe there's ways to limit justices post their second careers. I don't know what it would look like, but it's just going to get really, really weird to have a bunch of retired justices walking around in the private sector. And I think we ought to be cautious about that. I was not aware that those private firms existed. And that's a very good point you made. I want to go to another another question. So you stated you are an, uh, an originalist when it comes to the Constitution. So how would you respond to someone who believes that originalism, textualism, is inherently racist and sexist because of the founders' discriminatory views during the time the Constitution was written? Well, it's true that the original Constitution, it didn't solve the problem of slavery. It sidestepped it in many ways. I think that the original Constitution, actually, the things that it did do put us clearly on a trajectory towards the ending of slavery. It didn't use the word slaves, right? I think by, by saying people held to service or whatever the original phrase was in the Constitution, I think by avoiding the obvious word of slavery, it sort of reminded people that this was an, an awful thing and not a good thing. Maybe, an, I wouldn't say a necessary evil. It was, it was an evil that was not stamped out at the time, but everybody understood what it was. Even people who were hypocritical, like all of us are sometimes, you know, Thomas Jefferson and others. They understood what what was done, and they created a federal government that was strong enough to ultimately sustain the basic threats of the Civil War. They created a country capable of winning a civil war and abolishing slavery through the political process. 
but it was definitely not pretty. It was hor- horrible. I'm actually watching a new Showtime series about John Brown. It's kind of a gonzo over the top series, but it really is a stark reminder of the, the evils of slavery before the Civil War and the hypocrisy. But I don't think the Constitution was racist. And I don't think it was sexist. It was a constitution for a society that was too often racist and sexist. But the Constitution itself, based on the principles of the Declaration of Independence, prioritized the rule of law and created the framework that was necessary to abolish those evils. The Constitution doesn't speak in terms of men or women. Of course, it presumed, obviously, that it didn't allow the vote for women at first. It didn't prohibit it. It's just it left open these sexist institutions that the political process then overcame. So often the knock on originalism is that it's an allegiance to the attitudes of the founding generation. It's just not true. It instilled a rule of law so that we wouldn't be governed by just the attitudes and the prejudices of individual men, or today, individual men and women. But it created the framework to overcome those things. So we have just a few minutes left, three minutes exactly. I already touched a little bit on the Garland question. I'd be happy to return to that, but could I answer the other question about the Affordable Care Act? That's what I was actually going to put to you. Go for it. Oh, great. Thanks. And thanks, Chloe, for the great question. This is a really good question, right? On the one hand, like I said, Judge Barrett just can't answer these questions about the ACA, about Obamacare, or about what happens after questions about the elections and so on. She can't answer these questions. It would be bad enough for like a non-judge who's up for nomination to answer these questions. But for a sitting judge, it's just impossible. So then the question is, well, should the senators be asking these questions at all? And my short answer is no. My longer answer is no, but. The short answer is no, they shouldn't ask these questions because they all know it's improper for the nominee to answer them. The but is, again, it's not just that the court is bringing all these issues in. Litigants, and I was a lawyer for a long time, I've helped litigate constitutional cases. When we bring these disputes to the justices, right? When the Affordable Care Act, for example, I wish the court had struck it down. It didn't. I was a fan of the lawsuits, but I can also take a step back and know that when me and my fellow Republicans put so much emphasis on the court striking down laws, and when we campaign publicly for justices, and we campaign just not just in neutral terms of originalism, but we campaign in terms of we need good judges to strike these things down, it's inevitable that senators are going to ask questions, even questions that can't be answered. And again, it goes the other way as, as well when the left puts so much emphasis on constitutional litigation as a substitute for political persuasion. Again, a lot of lawsuits are warranted and, and all the ones I was involved in were good ones. But when we have you know, so much emphasis being put on the court and political campaigns around the court, it's inevitable we're going to be asked these questions. The nominees will be asked these questions. Thanks for listening. If you'd like to learn more about AEI's work on college campuses, visit AEI.org or click on the link in our show notes. And make sure to follow us at AEI for Students on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook to learn more about upcoming events for students.